Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the privilege of coming here and worshiping you. And we thank you that we have been able to worship you through song this morning. And now as we open the Bible and we look into it for a message from you, I pray that you would speak to our hearts clearly through your word. May we be open to what you have to say to us. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So today we are going to be answering one of the biggest questions that has plagued the human race since the beginning. What happens to us after we die? Because, see, death is the end of every human life, and people have always looked at death and wondered if there's anything that comes after death. So Shakespeare's Hamlet wonders about it very eloquently in his most famous speech, where he, uh, he's feeling like life is no longer worth living after he's had a series of terrible events in his life, his father is killed, and, uh, and he's just deciding that life is, is, uh, is tragic. And so he says this, he says, to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take up arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. To die, to sleep, no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep. So Hamlet is exhausted by the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and the sea of troubles that he is feeling. And so he wonders whether he should just take up arms and end his life. And he anticipates that to die will end all the heartaches of life. He says, "'Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die and to sleep." So this guy is clearly suffering from some serious depression, um, but he decides not to end his life in the next section. And, uh, and I've edited a bit, but he says, he says, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil? Must give us pause. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time when he himself might this quietest make with a bare bodkin, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others we know not of. See, so Hamlet decides he would rather face all the terrible things and all the trials of life, then face the unknown peril of the undiscovered country of death, because no one ever comes back to tell us what's there. So as I said, Hamlet was experiencing some severe depression. Most of us have a lot more reason to live than just the fear of what might come next. But, but one reason why this soliloquy is so famous is that Shakespeare was tapping into a genuine feeling that many people have had over the centuries. For Hamlet, it wasn't the fear of death, but the fear of that 
unknown thing that comes after death. What happens to us after we die? And as people have thought about this over the millennia, at the most basic level, there are three theoretical answers to the question. Right, so the first option, which is the one that has been least popular in the history of humanity, but has been gaining ground over the last century or so, uh, is that there is nothing after you die. When you die, you're just dead. Your life ends, and that's just it. Um, and this is what is being called the scientific answer to the question. They say, you're just a physical machine. Um, what you think of as your consciousness is nothing but a bunch of electrical impulses in your brain. And when those electrical impulses stop, you no longer exist. And proponents of this view might uh, admit that it's not a very cheery answer to the question, but they would say that it's better to believe the truth rather than believe a fairy tale. And I, I agree with them on that point. We should believe the truth. We should believe the truth, not what we want to believe. Um, the question is whether this is true, not whether we should believe the truth. Right? Because if this isn't true, then that's the fairy tale that people want to believe. And, and some people really do want to believe this. I mean, clearly that's what Hamlet wanted, right? Hamlet just wanted an end. And he was afraid that there might be something else after he dies. So, the second theoretical option to answer the question of what happens to us after we die is reincarnation, right? So in this option, there's some kind of a spirit or a soul within us, and, uh, and that kind of uh, consciousness is reborn after our death. The spirit does not really die when the body dies, and it goes through many lifetimes and many different bodies. And most of the people who believe in reincarnation are part of one of the, the religions that began in India. Um, the biggest ones are Hinduism, Buddhism, and Sikhism, but there's a few others as well. But beliefs over the details of exactly how it works vary among the various different uh, varieties of beliefs in reincarnation. But the Dalai Lama here, he's an interesting example of this kind of a belief. So this picture is uh, the current Dalai Lama, during his enthronement ceremony in 1940. And the reason that Tibetan Buddhists uh, had a small child as their spiritual leader, he was five years old at this time, uh, is that they believe that the current Dalai Lama is the 14th reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. That is, this child is not a five-year-old kid. He's rather a hundreds of years old wise man who has now been reborn in another life. So according to an article I found on the web that was written by the Dalai Lama himself, he says, uh, the third in line, Sonam Gyatso, was given the title of the Dalai Lama. And the fifth Dalai Lama established the Gadan Fodrang government in 1642, when he became the spiritual and political leader of Tibet. For more than 600 years since Gedun Drub, a series of unmistaken reincarnations has been recognized in the lineage of the Dalai Lama. 
The Dalai Lamas have functioned as both the political and spiritual leaders of Tibet for 369 years since 1642. So the idea here is that these 14 uh, Dalai Lamas are not really different people. They are the same person who is being reborn over and over again. So this five-year-old kid was worthy to lead because of the, his previous 13 lives, which have proved his wisdom and worthiness. Now, I'm not going to explain exactly how all this works, uh, partly because I do not understand how it's all supposed to work, and partly because that's not the point for us today. The point is simply to, uh, to explain that this is a theoretically possible answer to the question of what happens to us after we die. Maybe you, when you, after you die, you're reborn again in another life. So option one, nothing happens. You're just dead. Option two, we're reborn or reincarnated into another life in an endless or nearly endless cycle of life, death, and rebirth. Now, the third uh, theoretical option is that there's some kind of life after death, right? That uh, people continue to live on in some way after our bodies have died. And most versions of this option believe in some kind of a spirit or a soul that makes up the essence of what each person is and, and, and who, who we are, and that continues to live after your physical body stops. And uh, after death, uh, what, what kind of afterlife it is after death, it, yeah, there's a lot of different beliefs around the world. Uh, everything from Valhalla to the Elysian Fields to paradise or the spirit world or heaven or whatever you want to call it. And, and whatever the details of it are, the basic idea is that death is not the end. People live on in another form after they die. So those are the three general theoretical options uh, out there of what happens to us after we die. So how do we know which one is true? Are we left like Hamlet to just wander in fear of the undiscovered country? No. Because God has revealed a very clear answer to this question in the Bible. And today we're going to be looking at a few of the sections of the Bible that discuss it, starting with uh, the next section of the book of the Bible that we've been studying, uh, Romans chapter 2. And we'll be diving into Romans chapter 2 for most of our time today and looking at, uh, at what it has to tell us about this question. Um, we titled this series, Vital Truths in Focus. Because we see in this part of the Bible God's clear answers to some of the vital, foundational truths and, and questions that, uh, that form our understanding of the world around us and our place in it. And the question of what happens to us after we die is clearly in that category of a vital truth. So before we look at, at Romans, I want to take a minute to look at one of the most clear verses on this subject that tells us which of the three big options is correct and absolutely rules out the other two, all in one sentence. So here it is in Romans chapter 9. On the screen there it says, Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins 
of many. Now, for our purpose today, it's that first section where our question is answered. Um, People are destined to die once, and after that, to face the judgment. So do we die over and over again in a cycle of life and death and reincarnation? No. We die just once. And do we exist after we die? Yes. Uh, After we die, we face the judgment. So clearly, uh, both of those first two options are contrary to the, the plain teaching of the Scripture in many other places, too. This is just one of the places where it's said most clearly in in just one sentence. So out of the three basic theoretical options, God has told us that the truth is the third option. After we die, we continue to live. And this verse tells us something also uh, more than just that we continue to live. It tells us what is going to happen to us as we enter life after death. It says we will all face judgment. And there's a spoiler here at the end that, that Christ was sacrificed to take away the sins of, the, uh, of many. But we're, we're going to talk about that a lot more uh, as time goes on. We'll, we'll hit a, bit, a little bit today, but mostly in the next few, verses, or next few weeks' sermons, uh, we'll be getting into the, how that all works, how Christ's death uh, gives us all salvation. But that's also there in that Hebrews verse, but, but we're not going to talk much about that today. So, this is our first big takeaway today. This life is not all that there is. You will continue to live after you die. And that changes the calculus on a lot of decisions in our lives. We need to consider not only how our actions will affect our lives in the here and now, but also how they will affect our lives in the next life. And the Bible has a lot to teach us about how that's going to work and how we can, uh, how how our our lives now will affect our life in the future. And, And the most important part of that is that after we die, we will all be judged based on how we lived. And that's the second big important takeaway today. Not only will you continue to live after you die, but one of the first things that will happen to you in the afterlife is that you will stand before God, and God will judge you based on how you live. Now, let's get to our passage from Romans. Uh, We're in chapter 2. We're uh, up to verse 6 of Romans chapter 2, and here's what uh, it says there. It says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Now, the emphasis here is that God will bring about perfect justice for every action of every single person. And this judgment will be based on what we have done. And we see that emphasis uh, in uh, the famous passage in the book of Revelation where John sees a vision of the judgment and he describes it like this. He says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. 
and each person was judged according to what they had done. No good deed will be unrewarded, and no evil deed will be unpunished. God's justice will be perfect. Now, one of the important lessons uh, from this is that we do not need to worry that the bad guys are going to win. Right? They, they will not win. Evil will be judged. No one is going to get away with oppression or injustice or violence or racism or abuse or slander. They might look like they're getting away with it, but we can be certain that God will not forget and God will not fail to make all things right. And that's why we don't need to seek vengeance for things. A few chapters later in the book of Romans, uh, this idea is explained like this. It says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my, fr- my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So do not, take, uh, do not repay evil for evil, do not take revenge. If someone hurts you, it is not up to you to hurt them back. Um, and that's easy enough to, to follow when the hurt is something small and, uh, and easily overlooked, but when somebody really hurts you, and they hurt you badly, and it's within your power to return the favor, don't do it. Why not? Because we shouldn't seek justice? No, because we know that God will bring about perfect justice. God will repay each person according to what they have done. And no one will be able to complain that God has treated them unfairly. Look at this next section from Romans chapter 2 where he goes on to, to talk about the fairness of the judgment. He says, There will be trouble and, disp- and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. So, in human courts, it is pretty hard for us to have perfect justice. Um, We have prejudices, we have favoritism that skew our view of the facts. Um, It shades our attempts to set things right. But not so with God. He judges every person fairly and without prejudice or favoritism. Now, in this context, Paul makes it clear that being part of the chosen people of God, being, uh, being a Jew, will not result in a more favorable judgment. Nor will uh, not being part of the, fa- uh, the chosen people, being a Gentile, result in a less favorable judgment. All people will be judged fairly. And in today's context, we might say that being an American, living in one of the most Christian countries in the world, will not give you a privileged status at the judgment. 
nor will being from Iran, a country that is positioned against Christianity, give you a disadvantaged status. Another way that God's judgment will be perfectly just is that He will know every circumstance surrounding every action. There will be no mitigating or aggravating factors that He does not consider. We see this in in the book of Hebrews where it says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. So in addition to His perfect knowledge, God will also assign the perfect consequence for every action. No one will be punished more or less than they deserve. Now, for for many of us, uh, when we think about uh, the punishments of God, and especially when we think about uh, eternal hell, it seems like this is extreme, and it's probably out of proportion to the sin. Um, But when we feel that way, we can trust that God will not punish anyone more than they deserve. God will not send anyone to hell who does not actually deserve hell. He will not give any punishment that is undeserved. His justice will be perfect. And while things may seem unfair to us in our, un, in our limited understanding, we can be sure that God's knowledge, God's wisdom, and God's justice are all way greater than our own So when God's judgment is different than the way we ourselves would judge, we can be sure that it is our own understanding that's at fault. But our passage here talks not only about punishment for sin, it also talks about rewards for right living. And that also is a common theme throughout the Bible that when we do good, when we do good deeds, God will reward us for that. In fact, that is one of the core beliefs that the Bible teaches is necessary for us to please God. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. See, our actions have consequences in this life. Uh, Some of them are directly from God. Uh, Punishment and reward for good and bad behavior Uh, sometimes happen to us right away in the short term. But this justice that we see in this life is incomplete and imperfect. For His own reasons, God is still waiting until the final judgment to bring about the consequences for most of our deeds. And that means that when we've done something bad and it seems like we got away with it, Uh, we can be sure that we haven't, actually. Um, There is no statute of limitations, and at the final judgment, we will answer for every sin. Likewise, if you feel like you did something right and nobody even noticed, and you didn't get any credit for it, and nothing good happened, and there was no reward, um, in fact, you might have even suffered some kind of loss because you did what was right, um, If that's your situation, don't worry, God will reward every good work that we have done. So how does this reward and punishment from God going to work? 
Well, this is a part of the, the biblical teaching here that gets a little bit confusing because um, there's, there's two ways of looking at it. Um, the question is whether or not the judgment is a binary, kind of a pass-fail judgment with only two possible outcomes, or is it a judgment in which there's a varying degree of punishments and rewards with like Hitler on one end and Martin Luther King Jr. on the other end, and, uh, and most of us falling somewhere in the middle. Um, and the reason that it's a little unclear and there's some confusion on that question is because God's judgment will have elements of both. It will be a pass-fail, heaven-or-hell verdict, but also within those two categories, there will be varying degrees of both punishment and reward. So the Bible clearly teaches the pass-fail nature of the judgment in places like Jesus' description of the judgment in which he separates all people into two categories, metaphorically described as the sheep and the goats. And the sheep go to eternal reward, and the goats go to eternal torment. Very clearly, it's a binary thing. You're either a sheep or a goat. You're not something else. There's no cows or anything else in the middle. Um, nevertheless, here are some of the places where the Bible teaches that there will be varying degrees of punishment from God. So in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is speaking and he says, The servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving of punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So Jesus is saying that those who have less knowledge of right and wrong will be punished less severely than those who know what is right and fail to do it. Again, in, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is uh, talking about two cities uh, where he has done a lot of ministry already up near the Sea of Galilee two cities called Chorazin and Bethsaida, and he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which were two cities that used to exist uh, in the same region, but they had been judged by God already, um, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. So Jesus says there, the, the judgment is going to be worse for some than it will be for others. And one last one from the Gospel of Luke again, uh, Jesus says, Beware the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses for a show, or and for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So these guys are putting on a show of being religious, they're well-respected, they're uh, making these long prayers and all these things while they're actually being guilty of committing economic injustice to the vulnerable people in their communities. And these are the ones that Jesus said would be punished the most severely. So I'm not sure if Dante's Inferno, which uh, I think we got a picture of Dante up there, 
and he had nine circles of hell, and he described each one and who was going to be in each one. I don't know if he's quite exactly uh, right about it, but the basic idea that there's going to be different levels of punishment and, and, uh, and some will be punished less severely than others is a pretty clear, repeated biblical teaching. But that being said, the judgment is also binary in the sense that people who wind up condemned to the least severe level of hell are still in hell. It will not be good. What exactly is it going to be like? We don't know exactly, but, uh, but the common imagery that the Bible uses is darkness, fire, and weeping. It's going to be bad. And we can at the same time be certain that God will not punish anyone beyond what is just. But justice demands some pretty miserable-sounding punishments. But on the other side of the judgment is that there will also be varying levels of rewards. Again, the lowest level of reward will be incomparable with the least level of punishment. Uh, the least rewarded person in heaven will still be in heaven. But in many places, the Bible encourages us to look forward to the rewards that we uh, can, can earn and will be given by God at the judgment. One of the most detailed passages uh, about this is from the book of 1 Corinthians. And here's what it says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If anyone builds on this foundation, that is the foundation of their salvation, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. And the day, you'll notice it's capitalized there, the day is a reference to the day of judgment, the judgment day uh, at final judgment. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will, will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So this is a very metaphorical description of uh, the judgment that pictures all of our lives as building a structure on the foundation of our salvation through Jesus Christ. And then at the judgment, God will test what we have built to see how we did. And then the, the metaphor is a little bit weird here because I would think that lumber would be a much better building material than gold and diamonds or something. But anyway, the lumber and the wood and all that gets burned up. And what's left is the, the metal and the, and the stones and things. But so don't try to take it too literally, but anyway, the point is that some of our works will be proved literally worthless at the judgment and will be metaphorically burned up, while other works will be proved to be of great value and will be rewarded. And yet, this is, in this picture of judgment, the Bible is only talking about the aspect of judgment in which those who are among the sheep, that is, those who are going to heaven, are given differing levels of eternal rewards. And in light of this fact, we are encouraged to be careful how we build our lives. Now, a quick little side note here. If you want to get a little bit more teaching on this, you need to go on our Facebook page, and there's a music video on there from 1983, Petra, 
uh, Bema Seat, great song. You guys can all, if those who were not around in the 80s to enjoy the, the uh, high point of Christian music, can learn a little bit about how cool Christian bands used to be. And, uh, and, and you can uh, hear their song, which is based on this verse from 1 Corinthians. Uh, so get on our Facebook page and uh, listen to Petra to learn a little more about that. But anyway, there is one more thing that we need to clarify here before we go. So most of what we have talked about today has been about the fact that God will judge our works from this life and our eternal destiny will be determined by our good and bad works. And our passage today from Romans seems to be saying that some of us will be good enough to merit eternal reward, while others will be bad enough to merit eternal punishment. And our passage seems to be saying that, uh, that only if we, or our passage seems to be saying this only if we take it out of context. Right? Because in the context of Romans, uh, and uh, this is just one small section of the overall argument here, and, uh, and, and as we will explain in our Vital Truths in Focus, um, this section, the focus is on God's justice and the fact that we will all be judged according to what we have done. But as we go further along the passage, we'll see that, in fact, there's a big problem that we will all have when we stand before God. When it comes right down to it, we are all in the category of deserving punishment. I'm in the category of deserving punishment. Pastor Mike is in the category of deserving punishment. All of the elders of Clearwater Church are in the category of deserving punishment. So what happens to us after our bodies die? We continue to live. And one of the first things that will happen in the afterlife is that we'll be judged by God according to the things that we did in our lives. And our eternal destiny in the tremendous rewards of heaven or the terrible punishments of hell will be set at that judgment. And most of you know the rest of the story. The only way that any of us will be deemed worthy of reward and pass the judgment is if we've put our faith in Jesus and God sees His death as the punishment for our sins. And all those deeds that we have done that are deserving of punishment, God will say, those sins have been judged. I judged those sins when Jesus died on the cross. Therefore, that has been paid. You may enter into eternal reward. Now, if you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus for your salvation, I invite you to do that this morning. Um, I would love to have you come and talk to me after the service, but I also want to just guide you right now Here's what you have to do if, uh, if you are not yet in that category, if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus and His death is not ready to fulfill your uh, punishment for you, you just need to talk to God, you need to admit to Him, 
I have sinned, I have done things worthy of punishment, and I need to be forgiven. I need your mercy and your grace to forgive me, and I ask that Jesus' death on the cross be the payment for my sins. And if you do that, if you tell God that, He will take that as faith in Him. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, then we will be declared righteous at the judgment. Much more on that to come in the next couple of weeks, but I encourage any of you who have not done that yet to do that today. Come and talk to me about it. Talk to Pastor Mike about it. Um, talk to whoever you know here about it. And uh, yeah, let's, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing to us uh, the future of what happens to us after we die. Thank you for the warning about the judgment and for providing a way for us to be forgiven. Father, I pray that you would extend faith to everyone here today so that we all will trust in you. I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.